What's up, everyone? Today, we have a conversation with Rodney Carew, who is helping to enable the startup ecosystem in Zambia. He's part of an organization called Opening Capital Advisors, who help startups that are, that are looking to solve some of Zambia's biggest problems. They help them properly interface and deal with investors to raise capital, as well as helping investors understand how to invest in the Zambian ecosystem. This was an inspirational conversation, for sure. We talk about his upbringing, to where he is now, and it made me reflect a lot, and I hope it'll do the same for you. Enjoy. You know, he came in with the uniformed officer. Uh, the, the guy in uniform walked around the corner, but I could tell that he was still there. And the gentleman in, you know, who'd opened the door for me, the one with uh, the jacket and, and tie walks up to me and says, you know, I noticed that you walked building, you went upstairs, you came back out. Um, can you, you know, identify yourself? Do you have IDs? You know, tell me who you are. So I explained, you know, I'm, I'm a student. I was trying to find somewhere to sit and read and you realized that the space wasn't available. So I was trying to find some alternative space, showed him my student ID. Um, and he says, oh, okay, you know, we've had some break-ins. Um, so just wanted to make sure that you're a student, uh, give me back my ID, and then ask me, or are you on the football team? Um, and I said, no. Then asked, you know, are you on the basketball team? Uh, and I said, no. And, and I'm a, you know, decently large black man, right? But, and in that, you know, as a freshman, this was, I think, maybe first quarter at, at Northwestern, um, I didn't have the frameworks or the understanding of race in the U.S. to process that interaction, right? And it wasn't until later that I started learning a bit more about it that I understood what was going on. And I thought back to the fact that he said, you know, I saw you enter the building. I saw you walk through the lobby. I saw you go upstairs. That means from the moment he saw me, he was watching me. This is the New Africa Podcast, where we talk to leaders across all industries who are solving problems in Africa and are working to bolster the quality of living, economy, arts, and well-being of all the continent's people. I'm your host, Pelumi Fafawara. Um, so you're from Sierra Leone, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I guess, what was growing up there like? Yeah, yes. So, I mean, my childhood is an interesting one. Uh, my family is from Sierra Leone, but I actually grew up in three different countries. I was born in Kenya. Uh, my father was getting his master's degree here. My mother was also studying in Kenya. Uh, so I and both of my siblings were born in Kenya. Then we moved to Sierra Leone when I was two years old and stayed in Sierra Leone until nine, uh, then moved to the U.S. My father was studying for his PhD in the U.S., so that's what took us there. Uh, and at the time when we were looking to come back, um, the civil war in Sierra Leone was at its height. So that wasn't an option, and we ended up moving back to Kenya. So my father then started teaching at school where he got his master's degree. And so I finished the rest of my uh, childhood in Kenya. So that was from 12 until 18. So there's not a straightforward answer to your question because uh, it was in, in three, my childhood was across three different countries. 
but in all three very different experiences, I would say, uh, and countries at different levels of development and growth. Um, you know, moving to the U.S., for example, everything from, you know, snow for the first time to um, regular electricity were new experiences for me. But I have very fond memories of growing up in Sierra Leone. Uh, you know, it's the one time I think in my childhood that I've been surrounded by ex a lot of extended family. Uh, due to the Civil War in Sierra Leone, a lot of our family is left in, we're, you know, in, in the U.S. and the U.K. and other places. Uh, but that childhood gave the chance to, to grow up with extended family. Um, and really was, yeah, I think I didn't, know as much of the world obviously as I, I do now or even in subsequent years of my childhood but also a very fond childhood that that I look back on and um, reminisce fondly with with my my family at this point hmm. curious with your parents your parents seem like a really really educated a bunch and so did they they push you a lot during like when you were growing up do well super well in school <laughs> yeah definitely I mean uh, I know there's the, the stereotype of, of the African parents, right? Um, especially West Africans. But my parents' education was always important and was something that they always emphasized. And it, it was a mix because I, I naturally enjoyed learning. Um, and, you know, you talk to my aunts and, and my mother and others, and they'll tell you my head was always in a book. Um, so... For me, it wasn't something that they had to be strict on, but it was definitely something that they emphasized that this is really important to priority. Um, I, you know, I remember when I'd come home and you, you have report cards and you might have, you know, a bunch of A's and one B. And my father's question would be, oh, what happened with this B? It's not, oh, congratulations on all the A's. <laughs> so it definitely was high standard. But at the same time, you know, that was reflected in my parents as well. Um, as I said, my father earned a PhD. Uh, my mother, when we were in high school, then went back to school and, and got her master's degree. Uh, so both of them, you know, this was something that they modeled for us. It wasn't just telling us education was important. It was they had attained those degrees as well. Uh, so definitely something that they pushed us on um, and something that then became ingrained in myself and, and my siblings as well. Word, word. So you ended up going to Northwestern in Evanston, Illinois. So made you choose to go to university in the States as opposed to Kenya or wherever else? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it is a function of having grown up and gone to school in different countries. Um, so, you know, viewers may not know, but countries have different schooling systems, right? Um, and I think often when you haven't left your country, you might assume that everyone else kind of, you know, goes about education the same way. But when we were in Sierra Leone, because Sierra Leone is a British colony, we were being educated roughly equivalent, you know, according to the British education system. Um, so Sierra Leone has structured their system in that way. Uh, so when we moved to the U.S., we moved from uh, the British system to the American system. So, for example, the British system, you actually start school a year earlier than you do uh, in the U.S. So I kind of repeated some content that I'd already done. Um, but we moved from British to American. And then when we moved from the U.S. to Kenya, my parents didn't want us to go 
back and force another transition. Because as a child, you know, all of those things do, you know, affect your education, your trajectory. Um, so they thought it'd be easiest to keep us in an American system. So we ended up going to an American school in Nairobi. Um, Thankfully, you know, our, our, my father's employer, you know, contributed to some of those fees, um, but went to an American international school, which uh, American curriculum, they're very diverse. I think, you know, in terms of nationalities, 20, 25 different nationalities, my group of friends, you know, in high school made up of folks from Japan, Rwanda, Kenya, the U.S., uh, Canada, all over the place. Um, so that was what then kind of put me on the path to going to school in the US. So because I was in an American school in Kenya from sixth to 12th grade and had been in an American school uh, in the US from third to sixth grade, the kind of natural next step was then an American university. Uh, my father wasn't, that wasn't his preference. Um, you know, he wanted to push all of us to say, go to do your first degree on the continent, um, whether that is Makerere University in, in Uganda or, or somewhere else on the continent, and then go outside of the continent for your graduate degree. And that was his recommendation. You know, that was his trajectory. He got his you know, undergrad in Sierra Leone, master's degree in Kenya, and then PhD in, in the US, um, which you know, there's no correct path, but as, you know, as a teenager, my sights were set on the U.S. Um, and I think, you know, even being in an American school, I don't think our school opens up those possibilities, right? Because it's an American school, it was founded and designed to serve American students who are abroad. You are kind of conditioned and push down that path. And when you're talking about universities, most of the time, um, you know, the guidance counselors and so on are speaking about American schools. So I think that shaped a bit of my perspective. And I didn't have the broader view to really consider what my father was saying. I and, you know, other friends were all looking at at American University. So I think that was part of why I ended up that way. Um, and then in terms of Northwestern specifically, I, Northwestern wasn't originally on the list. Um, and it actually is kind of fortuitous in terms of how I ended up there. So I had, you know, done kind of the standard PSAT, SAT, uh, et cetera. And when you take the SAT, I have no idea if it's the same now, I presume it is, but there is, there's a little bubble you can fill out to say that you want schools to send you materials. And I fill that in. And I was receiving, you know, kind of constant uh, brochures, emails on from schools in the U.S. and had applied to a bunch of them. I don't even remember how many now, uh, but hadn't really considered Northwestern or didn't even really know much about Northwestern for most of that process. And it wasn't until I think the application deadline was in January. Um, maybe first or second week of January. And I think it was maybe late November or sometime in December that I got any material from Northwestern. And I looked at it and I was like, oh, this is a very good school. Um, you know, obviously academically, from a location standpoint, it was a good fit because we lived 
in Chicago. So I had some experience there. My brother lived in Evanston. Um, so you know, would have had family close by. So from all those things, you know, I was like, okay, this actually could be a good fit. Uh, but I didn't want to pay another application fee. Um, my parents aren't wealthy, like, you know, so I, I actually had decided not to apply because I'd already filled out a bunch of applications. And I think three days before the application deadline, I received an email from Northwestern saying it would waive my application fee. And at that point, I was then debating, do I, right, do I spend the time writing these application essays, filling this whole thing out, um, or do I just let this one go? So actually, day of the application deadline, I wrote the majority of my essays. <laughs> I don't think I even really did a good job proofreading and submitted the application. And I, you know, I think Northwestern was trying to boost their international students, but ended up getting a full tuition scholarship. Uh, to Northwestern. So it was actually between Northwestern uh, and another school and ended up going with Northwestern for those same factors I mentioned, right, in terms of uh, location, just quality of education, family being close by. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, all I'm hearing right now is that you're basically American. (laughs) And then it's like, it's also funny how, like when you were saying, oh, your dad is like, Oh, you get your first degree here, get your next degree here. It's funny how it's just like you like imply that you're like gonna go to grad school or do more. It's just like interesting that 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 how that works. Yeah, yeah. I mean it's and in some ways that is good, right? Because it it helps think about those possibilities and have that in mind, even though it's not explicitly stated. Granted, you know, there's a balance in terms of does that put pressure on, on kids as you're growing up? Um, but it definitely, I think, was set for us that, you know, undergrad, graduate school would, would be the likely path. And I think that has helped push all of us in, in terms of our career so far. Um, but it's an interesting point you raise in terms of being American and, and that identity. And I think it's something that I've always had to navigate. Um, you know, in high school, we, we talked a lot about third culture kids. And that's how I tend to, to identify. I don't know if that's you know, a term you guys have been familiar with or your listeners are. Um, but, you know, a third culture kid is essentially someone who grows up in a culture that is different from their home culture. So your culture is in your home is going to be different than what it is outside. Sometimes when I speak, people think I'm American, uh, but I go to Sierra Leone, for example, and they can tell that I didn't grow up there um, or I didn't you know, spend my whole childhood there because of my accent. And I think the interesting part of that is then navigating that nowhere that I go that I can feel I belong 100%, right? In the U.S., I might sound American at times, but... And I've you know, lived the experience of being a black man in America and know everything that comes with that. To this day, people ask me, where's home? And, and there's not really one answer, you know, when people ask you, where are you from? Yeah, yeah, I, I feel that, I feel that for real. Going back to just Northwestern, like, what was that? What, what do you think, what was that like? Was it, was it like a pretty easy transition because you've already gone to like American schools and we're in, like, went to school in the U.S. for a while. 
um, as a kid or like how, how did that go, that transition? Yeah, I, I don't think, you know, moving across an ocean and leaving your family behind is ever easy. Um, I think it was easier for me than many others. You know, right now I actually interview uh, students who are applying to Northwestern um, and have been doing that for a couple of years. And, and this is often something that they ask me about. And I think, you know, and I've seen the spectrum of folks. There, there are folks who are like me who have gone to an American international school or business international school um, or are from the U.S. or Europe um, or have lived there before. So their understanding of what it means to go to the U.S. is quite different than, say, a Kenyan or Ugandan or Zambian who has never had that experience before. And I think for me, I had a bit of, I'm somewhere in the, in the middle there, right? Because I lived in the U.S., but it was also as a child. I think it was from about 9 to 12. So while I knew some things of what to expect, it also was very much a child's perspective. For example, issues of race in the U.S., I think, are things that I had not fully grasped and wasn't prepared for, right? And many people who immigrate from Africa to the U.S. often feel the first time they're conscious of being Black is when you move to the U.S., right? And that was something I had to get used to, right? Even though I went to an international school with people from different countries, different backgrounds, the racial dynamics of living in the U.S. were not as prevalent in the same way. It certainly existed, um, you know, because you're, we went to a school that was mostly American teachers and so on. So it certainly existed, but living in that environment where the majority of people that you see on a regular basis don't look like you, um, navigating police and trying to navigate conversations around race, all of that were things that I wasn't quite prepared for. You know, for example, I remember there was a time in, in Godson, you'll know kind of what I'm talking about in, in terms of the locations here. Um, I, freshman year, I had come out of a class in Kresge, which is on, on the south side of, of Northwestern's campus. And I lived on a dorm in the north side on, um, in Sargent. And I had a meeting with a TA for, so it didn't really make sense uh, to go to my dorm and then come back down to South Campus where the meeting with the TA was. So I figured, all right, I just need to find somewhere to wait out those 30 minutes, you know, do some reading and then head over to this meeting with my TA. So I came out of the building and I knew the building next door, which is called McCormick Tribune, I believe. Um, it has couches in the lobby of the building. So I knew, you know, I could go there and sit down because the in Kresge, the building that my class was in, it was just benches on the ground floor. I don't know if Northwestern's changed. You know, it's been 10 years since I've been at school at Northwestern. But at the time, it was just benches on the ground floor, but McCormick Tribune had some couches. So I figured I'll go over there. That's comfortable. I can sit there, do my reading. As I was walking out, um, there was a gentleman, a white gentleman in a jacket, you know, blazer, tie, um, slacks, also walking into the building. 
it actually opened the door for me. So I walked in and the door is on the south entrance and the couches are on the north entrance. So you kind of have to walk through the lobby to get to the couches. So I walked over there and when I got there, I realized it, it turns out someone was doing an interview on camera. So I was like, oh, I can't sit here and be, you know, in the background of this interview. I, you know, I'll disrupt whatever it is they do. So I went to the second floor thinking maybe there's more space there that I can sit down. And it turns out those were offices. I'd never been before. I didn't know. Um, but I walked through and I was like, oh, okay, there's no space here that I can sit down. So I decided to go back to Kresge and just sit on the benches, which I originally didn't want to just because of comfort. But at that point, I was like, well, I don't really have any other options. About five minutes after that, a police uh, campus police car pulls up and I can see kind of out the hallway because of the door directly in front of me. So a campus police car pulls up, a uniformed officer speaking to the gentleman who opened the door for me. And the two of them then walk into the building. And the uniformed officer walks around the corner, but I can tell he's still there. And the gentleman in, you know, who'd opened the door for me, the one with uh, the jacket and, and tie walks up to me and says, you know, I noticed that you walked building, you went upstairs, you came back out. Um, can you, you know, identify yourself? Do you have IDs? You know, tell me who you are. So I explained, you know, I'm, I'm a student. I was trying to find somewhere to sit and read and you realized that the space wasn't available. So I was trying to find some alternative space, showed him my student ID. Um, and he says, oh, okay, you know, we've had some break-ins. Um, so just wanted to make sure that you're a student, uh, give me back my ID and then asks me, oh, are you on the football team? Um, and I said, no, then asked, you know, are you on the basketball team? Uh, and I said, no, and, and I'm a, you know, decently large black man, right? And in that, you know, as a freshman, this was, I think, maybe first quarter at, at Northwestern. Um, I didn't have the frameworks or the understanding of race in the U.S. to process that interaction, right? And it wasn't until later that I started learning a bit more about it that, I understood what was going on. And I thought back to the fact that he said, you know, I saw you enter the building. I saw you walk through the lobby. I saw you go upstairs. That means from the moment he saw me, he was watching me, right? It wasn't like something that I did. It was, he saw a black man enter a building and was automatically suspicious. And I wasn't dressed any differently than your average student would be. Um, but he's, because of who I was, he was suspicious of me. And then had the audacity to then assume that because you're a black man at Northwestern, you must be here on an athletic scholarship, right? That that is the only way that you were able to earn entry into the university. Never mind, you know, I got a full academic scholarship. Um, so I think those are some of the dynamics that I was not prepared for going to the U.S. Uh, even though I'd lived there as a child, you know, when you're 9, 10, 12 years old, you're, you're not as fully aware of those things, especially because I, I wasn't in that environment. And my parents also didn't have tools like to teach me about that. I think a lot of black kids in the U.S., your parents have that talk with you. 
my parents also hadn't had that themselves to be able to then educate me. So those, I think, were some of the toughest adjustments. In addition to being away from family, not having, you know, that immediate support network that um, I was used to. I just had to interject mm-hmm. because as someone that's currently going to Northwestern, it's kind of a shame that I've had an experience just like that. And I want to thank you for sharing that with our listeners. But same situation of someone following me across campus. I was tailed by police, asked why if I go here, asked if I was on a team. And mm-hmm. I was like, why, what is going on here? So in some ways, having this conversation with you is kind of eye opening that, you know, almost a decade later and we're having the same conversation and it truly highlights all the things we've been seeing this year. Uh, even though it's been our lifetime for a lot of us. So thank you for sharing with us. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I was going to say something like I resonate with that with that a lot. Like here I go to Rice. And so I mean, like I get the same get the same thing. Oh, are you an athlete? Are you like are you on the football team? And like as like for me, like it's like, wait, do I have to be an athlete to be able to like go to this school? You know what I mean? Like I, I'm just so I always say like, oh, I'm just a student. You know what I mean? It's like, I, I think initially I just didn't know how to process that stuff. I was just like, oh, okay. And, but like, it's just, just happened to like me. It's happened to like my, my roommate, who's also a black male. And like, even the, even him, he like freshman year, he like created like a little tag. Um, like just said, not a student athlete on his, like on his, on his, on his shirt, like as he was going around. Cause he would just wow. get that so much. And I and like me, myself, I like made a little shirt too. Mm-hmm. I just, I was like, not a student athlete. Cause I was like, bro, like, does it, do I have to be athlete to be on this school, to be at the school? So yeah, thanks for, yeah. Also thanks for sharing that. I really resonated with that for sure. I'm going to have to follow suit. I'm making one of those shirts. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's a shame that it doesn't surprise me, but it breaks my heart that you all are still dealing with the same thing, <laughs> you know, 15 years after, you know, my first year of, of undergrad and what is that? 11 years now since I've graduated it, it just kills me that you all still have to navigate those dynamics and that we, we cannot be at a point where black men and I, I know black women face the same issues um, where we are assumed not to be intellectual and assumed not to be deserving of a place at these so-called elite institutions because we're, you know, the assumption is that you have to have been here um, athletically, not because you have academic merit. Um, and it, yeah, it just, it, it kills me that you all still have to, to navigate this and those stereotypes still persist to this day, but, you know, got to continue fighting the battle. And I think having people on campus who can represent that and continue to demonstrate that we contain multitudes, um, is extremely important. And I know in our time at Northwestern, that was an ongoing battle. Um, I can't remember which year exactly, but there was one year where in terms of admissions, the percentage of black freshmen, I think was 4%, which is significantly below what you, you know, kind of the national population average and creates a lot of issues for you on campus where you don't see yourself, right? And you, you do not have that critical mass of fellow students who can relate to that experience um, and provide a support network for you on campus. And was a big issue for Northwestern because it was also, look, Chicago has so many black students, why are you not recruiting in your own backyard, right? Um, So 
and I, I don't quite know, you know, what the numbers look like now. Um, and certainly I think there is still progress that needs to be made, not just in terms of numbers, but also what does it mean to be a person of color and a black man and a black woman on this campus? Um, what are the safe spaces you have? What community do you have? What resources do you have? And recognizing that um, those are often unique and you have to make sure that those are served as an institution. But again, I haven't been on campus in a while. So um, hopefully these are things that are being addressed at your institutions. Yeah, 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 for sure. I mean, there's definitely been a lot of talk about that, especially coming from the summer with all like the, I guess the racial justice reckoning. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's definitely going to be a long process and just like, I guess we just have to keep working. So at Northwestern, I saw you join a fraternity. How did that, how, how did you think that affected your experience? That's, that's a good question. Um, I, I went to Northwestern never expecting to be a part of a fraternity. Um, and it's, you know, it's kind of an interesting journey to get there. I think having my formative years outside of the U.S. Uh, and not being exposed to Greek life firsthand or Black Greek life, I had very negative perceptions of Greek life. Um, and I think, you know, it was very much shaped by American movies. So, I don't know, things like Van Wilder. I can't remember what else was, you know, in the, in the cultural zeitgeist at the time when, when I was in, in high school. But I think those are the types of things that I'd seen and frankly had no interest in uh, because to me, it felt like a system that was purely just about partying and drinking. And, and I didn't, at least from those movies, see much value. Um, so went to Northwestern with, with no intention of joining a fraternity. And my initial exposure to Northwestern Greek life confirmed that perception. Um, and Godson, you know, as a current student, I don't know if you can relate to this or can speak to some of this, but when you got get to Northwestern, at the time it was called New Student Week. I think it's changed to Wildcat Welcome Week now. Um, but it was, you know, there was, a I think, a week on campus where it was just freshmen. And, and then I think the second week, underclassmen could start coming. And obviously, you know, we get a bunch of 18-year-olds who are out of uh, home for the first time and are just going through orientation, don't have classes yet. People want to party and want to be out, go out and have a good time. And, you know, God's and I'd love to know if it's still the same, but you would literally just have packs of freshmen roaming the streets of Northwestern, <laughs> trying to find places to party in and have a good time. Um, and inevitably, because of the way Northwestern and Evanston is set up, you end up going to the fraternities. And to clarify, you end up going to the predominantly white fraternities. <laughs> um, at least that was my initial exposure uh, as you were trying to navigate the system. And that reinforced to me this notion of just, oh, it's just people partying and, and trying to, you know, just enjoy themselves. There's not much more substance behind that. And it didn't seem to me like something that I felt compelled to be a part of. And at the time, I had no knowledge of Black Greek life. So it wasn't until homecoming 
Um, and as Godson, you know, can speak to much better than I can, given he's a current member of our chapter. Um, every year we host a scholarship ball for the Northwestern community, primarily attended by um, the Northwestern African-American community. And it's a chance for the community to come together, get dressed up, you know, look good, have a good time, but also to help out others. So we provide then scholarships typically to a rising um, a high school senior who will then be going to university the next year and to uh, a college freshman or, or, you know, kind of whatever combination is, is the most deserving. And so I received an invitation. Um, and at the time, I, I don't think Northwestern allows it anymore, but at the time, the brothers would actually send out personalized invitations to every Black student on campus. And I got this and I was like, who are these guys and why do they have my name? And why is this something I would attend? Um, and I spoke to a friend of mine who lived in the same dorm, who ended up being my pledge father, um, Oak, uh, also Nigerian, Okechukwuchika. Um, and he was going. So I said, okay, all right, I'll, I'll come along. Um, and to me, it was just such a different presentation of Greek life, right? All the brothers came out in tuxedos. Everyone at that event was dressed to the nines. And it wasn't, it was about enjoying themselves, but it wasn't about just partying, getting drunk. It was about, we want to have a good time because we are creating a space for us to celebrate who we are, celebrate the progress we've made and support the next generation as well. And that just struck me in a way that was a completely different view of what I had in my head as a Greek life. And then that led to me starting to ask questions about, well, who are these guys? What are they about? Why, you know, why is this so different than what I thought it was? And, and just started doing research. So, you know, research every single Greek organization, fraternities and sororities, uh, trying to understand the genesis of them, why they came about, why they existed, and also then seeing the legacy of those organizations in a way that I had not been exposed to, right? Because Black Greek life was founded as a refuge for Black students um, when they didn't have those spaces. Take, you know, our fraternity, Alpha Phi Alpha, we were founded at Cornell. Um, and it originally started out as a social study club, as a way for these men to come together and have a space when they were excluded from dorms, from student groups, from organizations on campus. It was a place for Black men to come together and be able to support each other in their academics, in just being Black on a predominantly white campus. Um, and not just that, but then looking at the legacy and the history of people who had come through those organizations. For us, it's everyone from, you know, MLK to Adam Powell to Andrew Young and just a whole host of other prominent Black Americans. And not just Alpha, but, you know, every other organization has folks that you can point to, you know, whether it's Maya Angelou or Nikki Giovanni or Kamala Harris, um, you know, Michael Jordan, like, so many influential African-Americans, Cedric the Entertainer, um, Steve Harvey, in all walks of life, from entertainment to academics to um, business, that it just started kind of being a compelling narrative for me to then say, 
the ideals of these organizations align in a lot of ways with mine because it yes it's it's about you know part of it is is having a good time but it's also about community it's also about service and it's about uplifting uh, the african american race and that started to speak to me in a way that i hadn't seen with other aspects of greek life and it also helped that you know an aunt of mine who had gone to school in the US she had was very had been very interested in delta um delta sigma theta was already incorporated um never actually joined but she was actually had always kind of been you know present with the organization friends who were deltas and she was actually in the process of joining so we actually ended up crossing in the same you know spring 2007 so speaking to her also then provided a very different perception because you know she had been exposed to it in undergrad like i had but then it continued to be active and i and i recognized that black greek organizations weren't just about those four years in university but were lifelong and were about service beyond those four years and community and in creating that sense of brotherhood and sisterhood throughout the rest of your life and and she provided that kind of longer term perspective for me as well um so those were a lot of the reasons why i ended up deciding to join alpha phi alpha um and i know that's a kind of a long-winded way of answering your question but back to your original question which is around you know what was that experience like and did it create a support system and for me absolutely right and recognizing you know being a member of a fraternity or sorority isn't for everyone but for me it it definitely gave a group of men who i had the same ideals with who i knew had my back and would support me regardless of what happened um and regardless of what i needed and were men who i could then also serve others with right and could collectively we could do much more than any of us could do individually and those are lifelong bonds for me um these are men to this day that you know i speak to regularly um on my birthday my partner organized a surprise zoom call with a bunch of guys from my chapter and it just meant so much to me that they all came out spent some time you know just catching up sharing updates on life on you know marriages babies and we all still keep in touch regularly and whenever i'm in the us you know make a point to see them um so it definitely gave a community and a place to feel safe and a place to explore you know your identity as a black man and have people who will walk that journey with you not just while you're on campus but for the rest of our lives No that's that's super big um and for me being currently in the chapter it's it feels like I'm hearing myself go through that decision again um my sophomore year uh and it's it's was that whole community that community sense and just giving service back um and it's been a beautiful thing to watch and even when you know older generations like you guys come back uh and have conversations with us uh it just reinforces that whole feeling of like why we do what we do. Um so thank you for sharing cuz I f- I feel like it just feels like I'm hearing myself like go through those that 
thought process again. Um, as far as like the, the welcome week and all that, very much so, still very similar. Um, and I spent a lot, some of my time last year as an orientation leader, and it was a different perspective watching it from that or from that mm-hmm. um, point of view. But so so similar that it's kind of eerie that a decade later and we're still in very much so in the same frame frame of work. Yeah, appreciate the perspective too. Because at least at Rice, yeah. we don't have we don't have uh, we don't have fraternities. So it's interesting just seeing what. I guess that greater perspective, that more nuanced perspective on what I guess fraternities can be and that brotherhood and like what you, what you can do together and that relationship you can build. Um, so yeah, I appreciate that. And then, so, so, okay. So you go through Northwestern, you go through your four years, you go through business school, I believe, or management school, and then you come back to, you know, you come back to the continent, you come back to Africa. I'm just like, why? <laughs> like, yeah. Um, short answer is it wasn't by choice. <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean, let me just give you kind of the, the, the background. So um, I graduated from Northwestern in 2009. And depending on, on, you know, who your listeners are, some folks may have experience with, with America's immigration system, but, you know, America's immigration system doesn't do a great job of retaining smart young people who have come to study in the U S and can then contribute to the country. Um, So the way it's set up, I think, I think it's still roughly the same, although I've certainly seen they're making some changes now under this administration. Um, But the way it was set up, you know, when I was graduating was you got one year, um, I think it's called optional practical training or OPT for short. You got one year to work. And then after that, you either had to leave the country, go back to school, or if you wanted to keep working, you needed to have an organization sponsor uh, a work visa. It's called an H-1B, which is the, the official classification. Um, so, and your H-1B has to be in your field of study. So you know, if you are an engineer, you have to be hired for an engineering job that the, and then that has to be, you know, shown on the application and the company is the one that submits it. And the, you know, the way the labor market is set up, it, these visas tend to be dominated by large firms, often, um, you know, the big tech firms like Facebook, Google, et cetera, or other large ent- companies, multinationals, you know, American companies, but multinationals um, who have, you know, whole departments that can, can manage this stuff. Now, the challenge for me was graduating from Northwestern in 2009, in the middle of a recession. Um, so that is available, but you're also competing with people who have much more experience and are willing to work for you know the same salary, unfortunately, just given the realities of the, of the market at the time. Um, and in addition, I, w- 
I studied political science and international studies. So with the thought at the time that I would go on to law school, but because of that, you know, that industry tends not to be that represented in H-1Bs. And because typically, you know, you have to demonstrate that the H-1B that you're hiring for, it's meant to be supplementary, right? It's meant to be that these skills are not available in the U.S. So way more competition, fewer slots available, and just much lower likelihood that someone who's hiring a poli-sci and international studies graduate is willing to sponsor a visa because that is also at a cost for the company, right? They have to pay for all those costs. So I worked for a year, actually worked for Northwestern for a little bit. And because I wanted to stay in the US, that was part of the reason I then went to graduate school. And I did a one year management degree. Um, also saw that that would give me a chance to pivot a bit and that business degree would be more likely to then allow me to get an H-1B and also mean kind of an additional year where hopefully the job market has recovered uh, from the recession. So graduated then in 2011 and did worked for a startup consulting firm in Atlanta for a bit and then moved to Minneapolis in 2012 and got a job with an international IT consulting firm. And I was staffed to, to Best Buy in Minneapolis. And they agreed to sponsor an H-1B. So, you know, at the time I was like, great, you know, I'm set. Want to stay in the U.S. for now. Um, you know, the thought was eventually return to the continent. But I think like many folks who go studying the U.S., at least work in the U.S. for a while, um, build up some capital, build up some experience, and then figure out, you know, if and when a return to the continent makes sense. Uh, so that was the plan. And, you know, I, I think also in the back of my mind, still thought that I might go to law school at some point, um, as that had been something that I'd, I was thinking about since, you know, being a teenager. And thought I was all set. And then November 2012, um, two things happened. One, my father passed away. And my parents were living in Kenya at the time. So although he actually passed away while traveling in the U.S., the funeral would be in Kenya. Um, and at the time, I was actually debating whether or not I would attend his funeral. Because while you are in that, I was not PT at the time, because after each degree, you get another year of OPT. While you're in that status, I think it, at the time was if I left the US, I wouldn't have been able to come back until a decision was made on my H-1B application. So I didn't know if I left the US for his funeral, when I could return. So I was debating, it was November, it passed away November 9, 2012. And in the next few days after, while trying to like, manage everything and actually travel to go um, identify the body and manage all of that to attend his funeral and then being kind of the state of limbo. And I think about a week after he passed, I then got a decision 
back from uh, US immigration saying my H-1B application was denied. So I couldn't stay in the US. <laughs> so in some ways, you know, it, it made the decision for me. But when your application gets denied, you have two weeks to leave the US, at least at the time. I, I don't know if it's different now. Um, so at that point, you know, I, I said my goodbyes, packed up the stuff that I had, had to leave some of it behind. And actually, I still have some stuff in storage with, with my aunts. Um, just because of how suddenly I had to leave and left the US in November 2012 and haven't been back since. So while you know, part of my longer term thinking was that I would return to the continent, it was definitely expedited because of that. And it wasn't originally by choice, but I think it has been the right move. And to me has been much more meaningful in terms of the career that I've been able to have. So, and, and that's not to denigrate anything. It's more in, in terms of what I, I want to achieve and, and what I find valuable. Um, in my current role, for example, uh, I work as a management consultant and the business is support. And I know, you know, you guys wanted to get a little bit into what I do now. Um, so I'll, I'll keep it brief at this point. But, you know, the businesses we support or the investors we work with, uh, are working on what I see as some of the fundamental developmental challenges that the continent faces. So some of them are bringing energy to homes that don't have it, allowing you know kids to be able to study at night, um, or allowing women not to have to walk to go get firewood in order to heat the home and to cook. Um, some of them are providing microloans and finance to people allowing them to build small businesses. Uh, some of the businesses that we work with um, are providing healthcare to low-income consumers who don't have access to basic healthcare. And to me, when I compare that to what I was doing at uh, a previous company, when I think about, you know, kind of the end result, I was, I was helping build some of the internal systems. But ultimately what I was doing was I was helping improve their systems to best sell more Xboxes and TVs and Playstations and whatnot. And while that brings joy to people, um, and I think entertainment is an important thing for us as human beings, when I think about does it fundamentally change people's lives in the way that some of the clients that I get to work with now do, it's, it's not even a comparison to me. Um, so I think... Being having the opportunity to come back to the continent, even though it was in for me very personally sad circumstances, has been a really meaningful professional career, and I think one that I've enjoyed much more than I necessarily would have if I'd stayed in that path in the U.S. Yeah, yeah, that 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 brought me back to I was reading on uh, Open Capital Advisors. That's your, the name of the company, I believe, right? Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I think going just hitting back on hit on what you said. Um, yeah, I was reading. I like I heard the vision. Well, I just watched one of your videos, really. And so, 
like the vision, the vision I saw saw was okay, like open capital advisors, um, they're looking to build a sustainable African continent where economies are driven by solutions developed by Africans for the most challenging problems that we see today. We see a continent that doesn't rely on aid and have developed solutions that are sustainable for the future. And so, I mean, that, I mean, just like all you said just now, just really, really, really resonated with me and like just resonated with like just in terms of like this podcast and just like inspiring people and like trying to like create a, a new future, like a new Africa, right? And so I guess I wanted to touch more on that. Like what, I guess, what does that vision mean to you? Um, yeah. I know you touched on it a little bit, but what does that vision mean to you? Yeah, and I think the, for me, it's it's deeply personal, right? You know, because I, I am, you know, son of the continent and I have, I'm from Sierra Leone. I, I spent my childhood in Sierra Leone and, and Kenya have lived in Zambia as well and have traveled across the continent. You know, everything from South Africa to Rwanda to um, Nigeria, Seychelles. I've seen, I've had the opportunity and I'm extremely lucky to have seen quite a bit of the continent. And the unique thing about Africa is our youth. We are the youngest continent in the world. And we have so much potential in that youth, right? We, I think something about 50% of Africans are, I think, under the age of 20 or 18. Um, And those young people can change this continent in so many ways and will be the ones who will build the next iteration of Africa. And, and I know I'm talking broadly here and, and you cannot, um, Africa is so much more than that, right? But um, to, to look at that high level, the key thing is though, that there needs to be opportunities for those young people, um, whether that is job opportunities that they can step into uh, or whether that is the chance for them to build their own organizations, um, but also opportunities for them to be well-educated so that they can then become the CEOs and the MDs of the next generation. And not just MDs and CEOs, right? Not everyone will be that, but the, the people who will drive growth and innovation on the continent, they need access to good education, right? They need access to good healthcare so that you do not have the rates of stunting that we do on the continent, which has a fundamental impact in people's ability and how people grow in their educational success later on. You, they need access to energy so that they can study at night, so that their families can provide for them. They, they need access to finance so that they can take loans or their parents can take loans that allows them to build businesses that they can then pay for their education and provide the basics that they need. Um, so all of those industries, you know, are water and sanitation, right? So that they can be healthy. Um, all of those industries to me are about how do we continue to grow and develop and build a continent so that the next generation has the tools, the resources that they need to then pick up that baton 
and do amazing things that we haven't even thought of yet. And also crucially, because we have created a situation where this is necessary for them, right? Climate change is probably the biggest existential threat that we face. And the sad part is that the people who have to deal with that, the young people of today, and I know I'm technically still young, I'm in my 30s, um, but you know the majority of the continent is younger than me. They're the ones who have not created this issue, right? And even more so on the continent because the, the climate that we're dealing with today has been created by so-called developed nations, right? The US and Europe and, and other countries. Um, they have created that, but it is the youth in those countries as well as those on the continent that are suffering from that and have to deal with that. Um, so we need to provide them with the resources, the tools, um, the spaces to be able to then address that issue, but also you know continue to build the continent um, and build on the potential that we have. So to me, that's that's why working on the continent is important, even if it's not in Sierra Leone, which um, you know is still very near and close to my heart, but. Look, you know, trying to take a broader lens across the continent. Um, that to me is you know, one of the most important things, I think. Yeah, yeah. Is why I am perfectly comfortable and happy. A lot of people ask me, you know, do you want to go back to the US? Both because of what is possible here and the fact that I feel I can do so much more, but also the dynamics of being black in the US, which I don't miss. Um, so to answer your question, I, you know, I think I came into this role in the Northwest, I suppose, which was a bit serendipitous um, and wasn't necessarily looking for OCA and actually joined Open Capital because of Northwestern uh, and because of Alpha. So when I was an undergrad at Northwestern, there was a who was also a brother of Alpha Phi Alpha, and he was a Kellogg at, when I was an undergrad. That's a relationship. Um, and he had then gone in Nairobi when I moved so great to catch up. I hadn't seen him in a couple of years. Uh, and when I mentioned that I was job hunting, he said, oh, and I know this guy to work with who started connection with him. Um, so, you know, those connections back from Northwest and from Alpha Phi Alpha led me to join in OCA uh, and has given me the opportunity to work on these things that are very important to me. But I think I didn't think about in the same way when I was working in the U.S., uh, and I've had the chance to really dive into over the last, what is that, seven years now at, at Open Capital. Yeah. Along these lines of the growth, you said the generation to bring in and the concerns of like climate change. Uh, we saw your work recently, uh, Open Capital Advisors work recently um, with Greenlight Planet. Um, can you, I guess, and I, with Greenlight Planet, which is trying to power like homes throughout Africa with, uh, sol with um, solar energy. Um, could you take us like through that? Can you talk us about, can you, I mean, can you take us like 
through them, like talk, talk to us about them and that project and how you guys got involved um, with them. I can't, unfortunately, just I wasn't on that project. Mm. Um, so we've got a team of, of 120 plus. Uh, so I don't know all of our work. I mean, I think what I, to, to give your listeners a bit of context, I think what you're referring to is, a you know, the Greenlight Planet, which is one of, you know, the, the largest providers of off-grid energy um, on the continent, recently raised $90 million. And, and we supported them on that capital raise. Um, so that's that's what you're referring to. I I can't speak to that one specifically just because I didn't work on that. That was our our capital markets team. But what I can do is, is talk a little bit about Open Capital's work more broadly, and maybe you know speak to one of the things that I've been on and, and give a bit more context on that. Um, so for your listeners, you know, to take a step back in terms of what we do, uh, as I mentioned, we're we're a management consulting and financial advisory firm. And, you know, you, you'd mentioned earlier around our vision, which is a re- developing African economies. And as you said, we want to see a continent that isn't reliant on aid. And the way we see it for Africa to grow and develop and to achieve the potential that we have. Now, aid certainly plays a role. And I think you'll see even in, you know, the most developed economies, you have nonprofits and non-governmental organizations that address issues that cannot be solved, you know, by a market. But we want to build industries that will address issues around access to energy, to education, to healthcare, to services, and, and a number of other industries that we operate in, and make those homegrown solutions that are sustainable because eventually you know aid money goes away but if you have a business that can make sales and allows money to then be plowed back into the business that then remains a sustainable solution that people can continue to access and but do see the potential that it has for the continent to grow um and i think that has been what we are trying to achieve and we do that in a couple of different ways one is working directly with businesses um, and that's everything from supporting them on their operations supporting them on um, things you know such as managing cash flow financial systems managing your people and how do you structure your uh, human capital for many. So that might be broad growth strategy, or it might be how do we reach a specific consumer segment. Uh, and for many of them, then help them to raise capital, and which you know everyone needs in order to, to grow a business. And um, it's a very different market than you know I think what many folks in the U.S. think of when you're thinking about raising capital, where you know Silicon Valley often comes to mind. And to date, you know, over the last ten years, have helped our clients raise. I think it's more than $700 million now. That's everything from, you know, a large raise like the 90 million with, with Greenlight Planet to $250,000 for an early stage company. On the other side of that equation, you know, also support investors because those investors often need support to be able to either identify businesses or 
or to complete due diligence on those businesses and understand what are the potential risks of investing in this business? How do I structure that investment? Um, or even just identifying suitable investment opportunities. So we work you know, hand in hand with businesses as well as hand in hand with investors. And then that gives us a unique perspective that we can then bring to what we call development partners. So that would be folks like the UN or the Gates Foundation, um, or MasterCard Foundation and USAID um, and, and other sort of organizations, um, World Bank and so on. And often work with them to look at, may not be working with, there are instances where partners will bring us in and help cover fees so that you know, we can work with businesses who may not be able to pay for our services directly. But often looking at more broad sector issues. So, you know, for example, we did some work in, in Zambia with the World Bank looking at why, what are the barriers to the growth of off-grid energy in Zambia? So that looks at everything from the you know, kind of tax structure to uh, quality of products to population density and the economics of the business. And then based on the barriers identified, trying to develop solutions um, that either the World Bank takes forward or finds ways to bring in other partners to then reduce those barriers so the businesses can then scale, right? It's not just about the individual business. It's also about the environment in which that business operates. And if that, if that environment isn't optimized, right, if they can't get access to affordable capital or the, they can't reach consumers because um, consumers don't have the right means to pay or because the roads are bad, right? Like all of that then affects the ability of that business to succeed. So that is us in brief. That's the very short version. Um, and I think, you know, to your question, and it sounds like it'd, it'd be helpful to give a bit more specifics around, um, you know, project that I've, I've worked on. Um, you know, I've given some examples of kind of high level. Uh, and, I, you know, one, you know, I can touch on, for example, is is a, is a client in, in Zambia that we, we supported to raise capital. Um, they're an FMCG, fast-moving consumer goods company. They needed capital because they wanted to build, a, you know, and, and build out their processing facility, and so that they could improve, you know, increase their capacity, reach more consumers, and provide these these snacks um, to to more Zambians. And and we worked with them then to figure out, you know, how much capital do you actually need. Because often what we see businesses will say, hey, you know, I need roughly this. And, and what we do is really quantify that and really think critically about her capital expenditure, which would be the machines and everything else that you, you might need to purchase for a factory. But, you know, what are your salary costs? What are your operating costs? And what does that then actually look like over the next three, five years? And how much capital do you need today to be able to fund that growth? Um, so we supported them on that, supported them on actually thinking about the growth strategy and then worked with them to identify potential investors and then negotiate with those investors. We did the outreach to those investors to say, hey, here's an interesting business. This is why we think it's a fit for you. Uh, and then supported through that negotiation, due diligence of the investors visiting asking questions about the business um, and then negotiating the terms of the investment. And, you know, you start with a broad pool of investors, you know, maybe 20 plus, 
and you end up with one or two who then might deploy capital into that business. So that's the type of work that we do and then have provided follow-on support to then help when they needed some additional financing or needed a little bit of strategy work. Um, and you then see the real tangible outcome of that where that facility then gets developed. That leads to more jobs because they then hire people to work in that facility. Um, it leads to greater economic benefit for the economy because that business then pays more taxes. The people that it pays pay more taxes. Um, it you know has its own suppliers then, right, who get more business because they now have someone else that they can supply. Um, and it leads to benefits for the, for the customers as well. They, can, they then get access to these goods that they may not have had. Um, and that's kind of a very tangible, real example of what I was speaking to in terms of the broader economic development that we are trying to drive. And then in general, what, what is a startup ecosystem like um, in, in Zambia? Yeah, so it's it, it varies. You know, I mean, I think the, the ecosystem is, is multifaceted, right? So um, it consists of a variety of different players, right? Everything from folks like us who are, are providing advisory, excuse me, advisory and consulting services to businesses, investors, and other stakeholders, um, to accelerators and incubators, right? So folks might be familiar with Y Combinator, others um, you know, from Silicon Valley, similar type organizations who often are working with earlier stage businesses, um, to development partners. And I think that might be one key difference, you know, often, you know, say from what people might be used to in the U.S. Um, and I think there's a question of, of what those dynamics are with um, Western nations, but many Western nations, everything from the U.S. to U.K. to Norway uh, to France to the EU, many of them have entities on the ground in Zambia and in other countries um, that work on private sector development. Uh, and those are some of our clients, but I think that is a, an aspect of the entrepreneurial ecosystem that, you know, if you have listeners in the U.S. may not, you don't see in the U.S. as well. Um, and those organizations will, you know, fund variety of different initiatives, whether that, as I've spoken to before, kind of addressing structural barriers in, in markets um, or supporting individual um, ecosystem players, such as the accelerators and incubators and so on. Um, so there's a variety of different stakeholders who support businesses as they look to scale and grow. Uh, depending on the economy, the size of that ecosystem is going to vary. Um, and the extent of, you know, how it developed this. So, for example, Kenya is often the, the darling, I suppose, um, and there's a nickname here for the, the Silicon Savannah, which, um, you know, kind of Kenya's version of Silicon Valley. Uh, but Kenya, I think often, Kenya, Nigeria, and, and then South Africa are often the markets that have the largest number of investors, of other types of players, such as accelerators and so on, who are, are supporting the entrepreneurial ecosystem. Um, and that's the range of folks that play in it. And I think, you know, what we then try to do is figure out who do we work with effectively and where do we then fit into that ecosystem? Um, because 
not every business will make sense for us to work with, but where can we actually provide the most help and, and the most value for businesses? And where does us come in and actually help those businesses scale? Because there are instances where businesses will reach out to us and will say, hey, look, you don't actually need us right now. Um, or we'll, you know, we'll give some quick initial advice or, or some thoughts, but it may not make sense for them to, to engage us right now. Maybe what they actually need um, is someone a different type of consultant, you know, maybe that is human-centered design, um, or maybe what they need is more around funding and, and can are at the point where they can engage directly with an investor, or maybe they're too early stage to work with us and they actually need someone who can help them figure out uh, a product market fit and, and an accelerator might be a better fit at that stage. Um, so I think the great part about it is that there are a lot of driven, innovative people who are trying to come up with different solutions and think about how to build companies and sustainable enterprises um, and supporting that those efforts in different ways. And I think you see that in Zambia, you see that in many other countries that, that people are, are operating in, in, in that open capital works in. And I think that's the exciting part, getting to work with all these innovators who are um, trying to do unique things in, in different ways and just learning from them um, and trying to support their growth as much as possible as well. Word. Uh, any, any startups we should look out for in the future? Keep an eye on. Uh, I mean, there's, I'm sure there's a long list. I guess the question is, you know, what types of startups are you interested in and what is it that you want to, to keep an eye on? Is it more, uh, you know, are you looking to place capital? Are you, it's more just things that you find exciting? Are there specific sectors that you think are particularly interesting? Uh, probably like energy. Energy. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, there's off-grid energy is a huge space. Um, and I think one that has been particularly interesting for us um, and have helped a lot of the companies in that space grow. So you look at folks such as Mkopa out of Kenya or Phoenix um, out of Zambia, sorry, out of uh, Uganda. They're, they're also operating in, in Zambia now um, who have really supported a large number of um, consumers to, to get access to, to energy. Um, but the space is also pretty diverse, right? Because those folks uh, primarily have been around home solar home systems, uh, but you also have things such as clean cooking, um, people who are trying to shift consumers away from charcoal to cooking with electric or other forms of um other forms of energy. So it's it's a really interesting and dynamic space. Those are some of the names that come to mind. You mentioned Greenlight Planet, for example, um, is, is another one. Um, but there's people who are constantly innovating and, and trying to come up with, with new ideas in it as well. So that's really cool that there's a lot of um, players, you know, trying to, trying to make a difference and trying to innovate on this. Yeah, and I think that's the, that's the also kind of exciting part about the potential that the continent has. Um, the While it is a challenge, but I think we are in a position where we can actually, we can A, learn from mistakes that the West has made, as it's so-called, um, but also in some instances kind of skip phases that, um, you know, those countries went through. So, you know, I'll give you an example. Um, I think probably the vast majority of, of people on the continent have not owned a landline, but you know, 
the vast majority of people have cell phones. Um, so we, we skipped kind of a whole generation or, you know, step in the, the telecom industry um, because we were able to build out that infrastructure as the technology developed. Um, and that allowed people to then get access to a whole host of services such as mobile money, loans through your, your phone, um, and many people, you know, access the internet through their phone and have never done so through a computer, which is what I think many people in the U.S., that was their first interaction with the internet, right? Um, so there's a huge opportunity, I think, to leverage the technology and the development and advancement that we've made, learn from the lessons and the mistakes that other countries have made, and, you know, even kind of skip to the next generation of that technology, um, in a similar way as, you know, you look at energy in the U.S. there, while we're recognizing the need to utilize renewable energy, that means shifting whole industries. Um, and it's, it's something you see in your politics, right, with um, when coal comes up and, and what does it mean for renewable energy for folks in that industry? Uh, whereas on the continent, a lot of people don't have access to energy at all right now. Um, in Zambia, for example, I think it's something about 90% of rural Zambians don't have access to energy, um, or at least it was, you know, the, the last time I looked at those numbers. And there's an opportunity there for them to use renewable energy as opposed to having to convert in the way that the U.S. is, is trying to do in order to address the challenges around uh, of climate change. Um, and, to, you know, that's an exciting and I think interesting opportunity that we have um, to be creative in these solutions um, as we're trying to fill these gaps and address the challenges uh, that the continent faces. Touching on Zambia, um, you're actually the head of the Zambia office in uh, for Open Capital Advisors, and I was wondering, yeah, like what's that? What's that work culture like? Yeah, it's it's an interesting question. I mean, you know, we are we're a, a multinational company. Um, you know, we were founded by Americans, actually, uh, but our team majority of our team is, is African, um, primarily from the countries in which we have offices. So Zambia, uh, Uganda, Kenya, um, and Nigeria, but also have folks from, from a few other countries as well, you know, such as myself from Sierra Leone, but then have and have had people from across the country. So our team includes people from the UK, from Bermuda, from the US, from Germany, um, India, so across the world. And I think that gives us a, a multinational um, approach and allows us to bring very different perspectives to the team and to some of these challenges that um, our clients face. And it is certainly a high performance culture. And, and I think one of the things I've enjoyed and appreciate about open capital is the chance to work with people who have high standards and have helped me learn and grow and, and develop in my career. Um, and in one in which, you know, we try to keep in mind the ultimate goal, which is how do we help drive developments of the continent 
both in terms of businesses and the economies we operate in, but also in, in terms of human capital um, and really investing in our people, recognizing that hopefully some of them go on to be, you know, the leaders of businesses and companies and governments um, and other organizations throughout uh, Africa. Um, so it's one where we, we can work a lot sometimes, um, you know, in, in consulting and, and finance. You, you need to respond to the needs of your clients. Um, but also, I think one where you then get exposure to a whole host of different types of people. Um, and one we try to have fun as well, where possible. Uh, I think COVID has certainly impacted that. You know, we're, we're doing things like virtual happy hours and so on. But so it's a challenge not being able to get together in person as, as we used to be to, to do. Um, I think in Zambia specifically, you know, it's been an interesting experience for me just trying to build something from the ground up, right? I think it's it's been great to have that entrepreneurial experience. Uh, unlike many entrepreneurs, you know, I had a bit of a safety net because I had the organization behind me. But, you know, still went to a new market before launching this office. I'd never actually been to Zambia. Um, still had to go to a new market, build a brand, set up the processes and systems and organization. And at the same time, to your point about culture, also then think about how do you build a unique culture that is suitable to this specific office while also maintaining the broader open capital culture, right? Because they're not just in, you know, the standards and how we operate, but you want people to be able to connect to their colleagues across different offices. And pre-COVID, you know, we used to gather the whole company twice a year, uh, usually fly everyone into Kenya um, in July and in December. Um, and, you know, want to have those commonalities. So, you know, we, we think about when we do training, sometimes that's delivered by teams um, in Nairobi or in Uganda, or we have a buddy and a, a mentor program. So everyone at Open Capital, when you join, you receive a buddy who's someone in your position um, that's been in your position, ideally kind of in the year before, and can help you just navigate, okay, what do I need to know? Someone you go to for questions, you get a budget to go out for lunch, you know, once a month. You, and then you also have a career mentor, someone who is um, a couple rungs, you know, in the, above you in the organization and has more career experience, but helps you think about, you know, what do you want out of this position, but also about your career more broadly. And again, you're at the minimum, you know, catch up once a month. Um, and that helps build those relationships and connections across different teams, across different offices. Uh, so, for example, you know, some of my team in Zambia, their uh, buddies are in Uganda or in Kenya. Now, obviously, you know, you don't get the same type of in-person interaction, but it creates, you know, that sense of being a broader team and not just one team in Zambia, it's, you know, we're, we're part of a broader organization. So, so those are some of the dynamics you then have to think about as you set up a new office, how do you make sure that it is still, it still retains, you know, what makes open capital unique? Um, but also how do you adjust that to the local context and the team and build that organization in a way that meets the needs of your team on the ground? Um, and is then flexible enough to adapt as well. 
Yeah, so how, that, I mean, that sounds really, I mean, of course, you starting it and then the actual work seems like demanding, but also fun. Um, how do you personally go about like work-life harmony and like not working too much and also like taking care of yourself? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> and one I think for me is constantly evolving. Um, I don't have, you know, a perfect answer. And I think it, it also fluctuates, right? Because there, there are times when work gets more intense, when it's, you know, other times when it's less intense. And I'm, I'm constantly experimenting to figure out what is the right balance and what are the things that I need to create that balance. Um, and I, you know, for example, um, this year I started meditating it's on and off and, and I need to do a better job of being consistent with it. But I think, you know, that's an aspect that then helps with, you know, just finding balance and, and managing mental health, for example, um, trying to be physically active. Um, also trying to figure out making sure to create that space between work and being outside of work. Um, and I think, you know, what I realized and, <laughs> Um, I'm sure a lot of entrepreneurs can, can relate, you know, when I moved into this role where I was setting up this office and, and trying to build it, um, work is always on your mind, right? It's when, when you are, when I was more just, Hey, I have my projects I need to deliver. Um, I, I could leave work and just know, okay, I'll come back and pick it up the next day, right? When you're responsible for an office, there's always something else that could be done. Um, you know, whether it's additional business development or, you know, there was an operations thing that, that is still hanging. So it's always in the back of your mind. So I think finding ways just to switch that off um, and getting comfortable with knowing that, everything will not always be done and there's always something else to be done. Um, and I think it's also around having the right people in your life, right? Friends who are understanding and accommodating when there are instances where, you know, you do need to, for example, work on a weekend, um, but also then make sure to, to push you to, to get outside of that and want um, to, you know, do fun activities and, and um make sure that you know you're building those relationships and investing in those um and that's something i, I do try to do is, is being intentional about my relationships um and creating the the time for those because ultimately you know no matter how much you work and no matter how meaningful work is um we are we're, we're social animals right and what makes life meaningful is not just what we do through work but also the people around us and the relationships we build. So making sure to make time for those, both family and friends, um, and also have a partner who's, who's very understanding and um, pushes me as well to, to make sure to have the right balance and is willing to call me out when, when that's not the case, right? So I think there's a variety of different things that, that are important, but I think fundamentally it's making sure to establish those priorities um, and sticking to those and having someone who will hold you accountable for those is needed. Yeah. And then touching on that, like just your, the stuff you have to go through with your mental, do you ever feel like imposter syndrome syndrome or being like, like from being the head or being like super overwhelmed, I guess like what's your mind space as you like one, like heading this office 
and having to deal with all, like all these different things you have to deal with. Um, yeah. Oh, all the time. <laughs> um, I mean, I think it's impossible not to, right? Because, and I think this is one of the things that open capital does well is regularly giving our team new opportunities and and chances to experiment with things that we haven't done before. Um, I mean, you know, the, the most visceral example for me is, is, is setting up a, a country office, which I had no idea what that entailed. Um, you know, but our, our, our partners saw something in me where they thought, okay, this is something we think you can do and we'll provide you the support to do that. But absolutely, you know, when I got on the ground and, and, even in saying, you know, I'm, I'm the head of our Zambia office, right? You feel like, no, I, I'm, I'm not capable of that, right? And um, I think I set up the office when I was maybe 29, um, 28, 29, right? So certainly did not feel established in my career where I could say, you know, I, I, I am running something. Um, and I think that still continues to this day, right? Because um, I'm constantly stepping into situations that, are new to me and experiences that I haven't had before. Um, and sometimes I look around like, why do they recognize that I don't know what I'm doing? Like, are they going to find me out and think and realize like they should fire me? Um, and I know a lot of colleagues who feel the same way and, and peers and, you know, friends, um, you know, that sense of like, I, I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, but, you know, you then step back and say, okay, I, I don't, I may not know what I'm doing right now, but I have been through that before and I have navigated that and I've been able to figure these things out. Um, and, you know, I've got this far, right? But I think it is a constant process that you have to go through. And I think, um, and I know in the US, it's, there's, there's the added racial dynamic as well, right? You know, we were talking about earlier the, the experiences all of us have had about going, you know, being on campus and, and that being questioned, the assumption that you're there because of academics. And that has an insidious effect, right? It even if you you don't think about it consciously, right? That those types of interactions can erode that confidence, right? And the subliminal message you're receiving is you are not capable you're not worthy right you you're not you're only here because of some special dispensation and you're not up to par and how you know working in the u.s for a little bit I, th I think you see that as well in the professional environment and you still think about that and you still have to navigate that um you know or folks who think like oh you're only here because of affirmative action or because they wanted diversity representation right and, and i know that dynamic doesn't play as much as you know on the continent um but you know i do still deal with a whole host of, of diverse folks and um there are still stereotypes around how africans operate um or you know specific nationalities zambians Kenyans, etc right that you then still have to navigate so i i think imposter syndrome is, is absolutely um a challenge to deal with, uh, but you know it's kind of remembering that you've done gone through it before, and also looking at you know there are examples of folks who are much less qualified and and you know 
not not as capable who are quite confident and step into roles um, and take things on, right? So looking around and, and seeing that, but also creating the room to speak with people about that, right? And having folks who also experience a, a imposter syndrome and who will back you up and say, no, no, you, you can do this. Um, so it, it is definitely a challenge. And I think one that you constantly have to navigate, but is, is manageable. And I think being aware of it and being conscious of it is the first step to then addressing it. Yeah. Yeah. That's big. Cause I mean, I think all of us definitely go through those, those, those same emotions and thoughts. And then you kind of just have to like reassure yourself or just like talk to people and like get some reassurance somehow, or just, I don't know, figure out ways to process that. So yeah, thank you for that. Thank you for that. Um, yeah. So I, I think gonna, like more of like a wrapping up questions. I like to wrap up with two, with two questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the first one is, how would you recommend, uh, how would you recommend young people um, specifically, specifically, especially in, um, in Africa and in the diaspora um, to get involved in just solving problems and solving problems around them and in general? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think it's being, just starting out just being inquisitive, right? And I think one thing that I've tried to do and, and haven't done a great job of, but, but trying to be more consistent of, is looking at problems as opportunities, right? Because, you know, every time you experience a challenge, write that down, right? Just, you know, if it's, hey, I couldn't send money well, or I'm struggling, you know, I couldn't get from point A to point B effectively, um, you know, or I, there's this thing, you know, this product that I, I need and I just can't find it, right? Um, write those down, right? Because then those are the the seeds of opportunity, right? And if it's then reviewing that on a weekly, a monthly basis, whatever it is, and then seeing, okay, if this is a problem that I'm experiencing, chances are other people as well. Um, And then just sitting down and thinking about what are ways to solve this problem, right? So whether it is, you know, force yourself to come up with five ideas or something, um, I think just that conscious act puts you in that mindset of viewing the problems as opportunities and then thinking about solutions to them. so to me, that's just one practical thing I think that, that you can do. Um, and then from there, I think it's just experimenting, right? If, and certainly recognize, you know, people are at different points and not everyone is going to be able to say, okay, I'm just, I have the means or the funds just to start a business. Um, if that is the route that you think is most effective to, to solve that problem. Um, but, you know, starting to experiment with things, right? If you do come up with a problem and you think, okay, I can, I can think of a couple solutions, just try those out. Um, I think at the same time, it's, you know, identifying who else has been working on that. And if there's something that particularly piques your interest, um, finding organizations or individuals who have, have started on that path already and, and, you know, either getting a chance to work with them or, you know, trying to get a little bit of their insights as well. Um, and I think it's just also getting comfortable with failure and recognizing that you're right. You might have 10 ideas and maybe all of them fail initially. 
Um, but rec- being comfortable with that and, and knowing that that is part of the journey and that is how you learn and develop the next model that might be a bit better. And that's how you get lessons that you can apply. Maybe it's not to this specific thing because maybe this doesn't work out, but you can then take what you learned from that and apply it somewhere else, right? So I think it's making sure that you, you know, to that question about imposter syndrome, don't be too hard on yourself if things don't work out and to keep trying um, and and maintain that view of like, yeah, I, I can keep experimenting and eventually we'll, we'll hit on something. Um, and, and finding a good network of people who can support that as well, um, whether that's friends, family, colleagues, et cetera. So those are some of the kind of practical things, I guess, come to mind in terms of trying to solve problems. That's big. <laughs> I'm going to keep that in mind for sure. <laughs> um, yeah, and the, I guess the, the final question is, What's the most what's the most beautiful, fun or enjoyable thing you like about I mean you can pick whatever country you've been to been <laughs> been to um or like you've grown up in with your long multinational um <laughs> childhood um yeah I so like and it could be related to where you grew up where you live now and just anything that makes sense to you um that is a uh... <laughs> Any experience, There's so many anything. possible answers to that question. Um, I mean, I think one thing that immediately comes to mind, and I, I'm certainly in a very privileged position to be able to tap into this, is, you know, is my you know, opportunity to travel. Um, and I know many people on the continent don't have that same type of opportunity, so I'm very grateful for it. But I've had the chance to see such wide, you know, experiences and in such diverse aspects of the continent, Um, you know, everything from Victoria Falls or as it should be properly called, Mosio Atunia, um, which is just spectacular and stunning, um, to the beaches of Kenya or to the Seychelles, um, where, you know, I had the chance to, to go last year. Um, and Kenya in and of itself is so diverse from beaches to the savannah, you know, got a chance this year to go to Maasai Mara, um, mountains. So there's, you know, there's a whole spectrum of things just in Kenya alone, but I've, you know, I've been lucky to go across the continent, um, you know, even Sierra Leone's beaches, Senegal and, and, and a number of other countries as well. So I think for me, that's, you know, one of the things that has been, I guess one of the most beautiful things, I think not just seeing those, but being privileged enough to have the opportunity to take advantage of those. Um, The other thing for me is just food. Um, I think especially Sierra Leone and West African food. Um, You know, I went to to Nigeria and Ghana for work a, a while back and just being in just like that rich culinary environment and, and the food that our people can make um, is, I was just so happy. Right? Um, and I sent my partner, you know, a picture that a colleague of me took, just so satisfied at this Ghana, at this restaurant in, in Ghana. Um, so to me, just the food experience is, is so beautiful as well. Um, especially like 
you know, when, when I have the opportunity to eat like my grandmother's cooking, um, to me, that just, you know, is home in, in so many ways. Um, and then ultimately, I think also just the people, um, having had the opportunity to live in so many different countries and travel across the continent, um, and just being welcomed by, you know, a variety of different pe- types of people and just learning about cultures and, um, practices and what's important to, to different, um, cultures has been a chance for me to just learn and grow and be exposed as well. Um, you know, for example, going to Rwanda last year and visiting the, the genocide memorial and hearing from survivors, um, and that being very real for me because, you know, my country also went through a civil war um, and recognizing that I got lucky in, in my family leaving at the time that we did. Um, but also then seeing everything else that um, both of those countries have then been able to do since then. Um, and then being welcomed in, in people's homes um, and getting the chances to, to learn and hear people's experiences, not just things that are you know, tragic and, and tough for us to deal with, um, such as the genocide earlier in civil war, but also this is the joys and um, everyday pleasures of, of life that you then get to be a part of, um, or being welcomed in Zambia by friends who have taught me um, what it is to be Zambian and, and you know, help build a community there in a place where I didn't know anyone. That was Rodney Carew, the head of the Zambia Office for Open Capital Advisors. If you want to connect with him or engage with any of his content, I've put some resources in the description. Thanks for listening. I'm Pelumi Fafawara. I'm Gosnas Alai. And this is the New Africa Podcast.